I'm Eric. And I'm Lauren. We've both volunteered for progressive political causes. And we're both nerds. Growing up, Shiro was one of my favorite shows. I've never seen it before. Catching it on Netflix again recently, it struck me how modern the show still feels. Even though it's definitely a product of its time. We're interested in the ways She-Ra presents a modern progressive message. And the ways in which it fails. Join us each week as we dive deep into a different She-Ra story. Always with an eye on how it relates to the present. We're only doing episodes from the first season, so you can follow along on Netflix. But we'll also recap the episodes so you don't have to. We'd love to hear your feedback on everything we're discussing. So please, enjoy this political, nerdy dive into a heck of a cartoon. This This is is She-Ra, Progressive Progressive of Power. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of She-Ra, Progressive of Power. I'm Eric. I'm Lauren. Yeah, and today we're talking about two episodes that are about art. Uh, how meta of us. So we're covering the episodes Play It Again, Bo, and Treasure of the First Ones. And Lauren, I think the people out there in podcast land, they probably want to know us better, right? Because obviously we're amazing, stunning people. Lauren, tell me, what is some art that you enjoy Besides She-Ra, Princess of Power. Oh, my goodness. Uh, So I'm notorious for not watching movies. Anytime someone asks me, "Uh, what is that actor from that thing? I'm like, I have no idea. Uh, Movies are not my jam, unfortunately. I fall asleep during them. I wish I didn't. Uh, But I am really into... uh, Let's see. Right now, I'm reading a book called The Stone Sky. It is the third book in a series by an author named Jemison, and it is a fantasy book uh, all about these uh, human beings, these women who control rocks and geology with this power that they're born with, and they're sort of pushed out of society and simultaneously manipulated by society. It's written by uh, a woman of color, and so she always makes sure to like let us know loud and clear sort of the 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 di- racial diversity of the cast. What's really exciting about it is that it was originally written, book one was written uh, as part of a science writing exercise. So she incorporates a lot of real science and a real geology into her fantasy book. It is a great read. Um, we are in my room right now, my craft room, and we're surrounded by my various wigs. Uh, I am a cosplayer, as we mentioned in an earlier podcast. We see my Game of Thrones wig, my Disney wigs, my Zelda wigs, big into video games, and uh, I guess I should turn it over to you. Do do you consider podcasting art, by the way? Because you said it was meta. Oh, I absolutely do. Do you not? I think it depends on the podcast. First of all, I think I only said it was meta because it's a show, which a television show, which is art talking about art. Sure. So in a way, it's talking about itself. But absolutely, I think podcasts are art. Uh, I kind of like the Scott McCloud definition that anything that humans don't need to survive that they create is art. That's fair. I mean, that incorporates a lot of things then, like home decor. That is art. And f- desserts. Absol- <laughs> absolutely, that is art. Oh, my gosh. Culinary art. Although I've long held that food is the only type of critic you like the only criticism where you can't do something like bad to make a point like you can make like an ugly painting and the discord like strikes uh you know and makes some larger point but you can't really like 
cook a shitty dish and be like, look, see what art I'm giving you because this tastes like garbage. Just doesn't happen. I don't know if that's true. I think I could just dump a bunch of spicy peppers into some food and be like, deal with it. But is that art? Uh... I mean, is it is it like intentional? I mean, this is a deep conversation <laughs> for this show. Um, so what art do I enjoy? I mean, yeah, I love podcasts. I'm like you that I don't really watch movies. I just don't tend to favor my entertainment in two to three hour chunks. I prefer 22 to 44 minutes. So I watch a lot of TV. I'm very excited that uh, television is back. I just uh, this morning watched the season premiere of The Good Place, which is a really good show that was marketed really poorly, um, but I really like that show a lot. It's by the Parks and Rec people, but it's like very serialized, so every episode is like a chapter in this woman's story where she thinks that she's died and gone to, quote, The Good Place, but that she doesn't belong there, but like the truth is much deeper than that. Uh, also, probably controversial, I have really enjoyed the first two episodes of The Orville, which I am shocked to say. Oh, we've avoided that due to critical response, which I, well, maybe yeah. isn't what one should do. No, I think that's fair. Critics are really unhappy with it. And the thing is, I don't disagree with them. Everyone says it's toothless. It's not a funny parody. I agree. Seth MacFarlane basically just made Star Trek, but it's PG-13 and with like some schlubby characters. I think it's kind of charming. And I think for all the harm that Seth MacFarlane has done and all the terrible shows he's put into the world, it's nice to see him trying to do something good. Uh, the timing is weird since there is a new Star Trek premiering this weekend. I really have a lot of mixed feelings about Discovery, though, primarily around the fact that it's behind a, pay a paywall, which I do not like. Star Trek should, in fact, be for everyone. Yeah, especially because they built the structure that causes you to pay for this show. It's not like a Star Trek movie where, like, well, you just have to pay to see a movie. That's what movies are. Like, CBS created a paywall to make you watch Star Trek. I hate that so much. I think that will come back around in our discussion about art and who should have access to it. I think it will. So let's get into it. So before we get into the episode uh, recaps today, this is our second episode where we have a special guest. Uh, Lauren, do you want to introduce our guest? Yes, this is my friend Marcus Warren. It is his first podcast. We are honored. And we brought Marcus here today uh, because his job is relevant to what we're about to talk about. Marcus, tell us about yourself. Uh, hi, Lauren, Eric. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, as Lauren said, my job is relevant to art. I am a gallery preparator and uh, shop coordinator at the University of Chicago. So I get to work a lot with uh, artists and students handling art, hanging art, and looking at art. What does that mean on a sort of day-to-day -day basis? What's an average day? Um, it depends. A lot of my job involves helping the uh, our wood shop and metal shop, which caters to our Department of Visual Arts, um, both the MFAs, the BA students, and just uh, students trying to finish out all of their requirements to graduate. So a lot of or not engineering, mathematics and science students, since it's uh, the University of Chicago, uh, learning how to use a drill. Um, and then when we have shows, it gets a lot more interesting. Uh, shipping artwork, receiving artwork, hanging artwork, and dealing with artists, helping them achieve what they want to show in our gallery. Great. Is there anything uh, interesting on display right now that you're particularly fond of? Oh, right now we actually have an amazing show up called uh, Divine Violence by uh, Cynthia, uh, Cynthia Marcella and uh, a Brazilian artist named Tiago. And I'm blanking on his last name right now, but it is a, a really amazing video installation dealing with uh, political unrest in Brazil, a lot of both social and political aspects going on there. So, so this is a pretty good podcast for you to be on, really. Oh, yeah, this is going to be great. So how do you guys know each other? 
Uh, we've met through Our Fair City, I believe, people. is. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I really think the first time we really locked eyes was in a LARP, in which a is LARP. an incredibly nerdy thing to say. <laughs> uh, I am not a regular LARP participant. Uh, it was my one and only LARP, and uh, I was playing Dana Scully from The X-Files, and uh, Marcus, just every every scene I did with Marcus, I was like, who is that guy? I have to I have to know more about that hilarious dude. And, and that was actually one of my first forays into LARP. It was the first group I'd ever done it with and the second LARP I did with that group. Um, it was very different than all of my conceptions about what a LARP was. For those playing at home, uh, LARP is live action role play. You can see it on display in the wonderful movie Role Models, which is one of my very favorite studio comedies of all time. Someone told me I can't really call it a studio comedy because David Wayne directed it. I don't care. He had a studio's budget, but I love David Wayne. Speaking of art, we enjoy. Anyway. Tell us about those episodes. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to take these episodes out of order because I think that Play to Gambo has way more to say than Treasure the First Ones, uh, even though Treasure the First Ones aired second. I mean, there's not like a strong continuity to this show either. Although, <laughs> in Treasure of the First Ones, our friend Seahawk returns because Hordak gets wind that this mystical island uh, that is said to contain the treasure of the First Ones is going to rise for the first time since it was uh, hidden by the founders of Etheria. And so Hordak gets in his Horde Dreadnought to go obtain this treasure, which he assumes is things like weapons that will kill all the rebels. And uh, Light Hope, our friend from the Crystal Castle, tells She-Ra. So She-Ra goes to enlist uh, the help of Adora's maybe boyfriend, Seahawk, because he has the ship. And Seahawk is real sad that Adora's not there. He's a little thirsty at first, but he agrees to sign up with She-Ra. And they go to this island. They fight this really cool octopus lady in a really great scene that I hope we talk about. And uh, then the island rises. And oh no, it turns out that the treasure of the first ones is all art. It's like sculptures and paintings and all these things that Hordak thinks is garbage. So he seeds the treasure to She-Ra, but then he's going to blow up the island. But then She-Ra stops him. Pretty much end of episode. So we're meant to walk away from that episode thinking, okay, art is treasure. I think that's like a good thesis. This show is firmly pro-art, in case you were curious. Uh, play it again, Bo. Boy, this is a heck of an episode. So... It opens on an old man named the Bottle Man, who's uh, we learn his real name is Frit. He is an ex-boyfriend of Madame Raz, and he goes around Etheria collecting bottles from villages and telling stories about the time before the Horde came. The Horde has stolen his horse, so he is having a hard time getting around. Adora volunteers to rescue his horse. Meanwhile, Bo and Madame Raz help Frit kind of take his newest acquisition of bottles up to why he wants them, which is this giant glass monument made of different colors of bottles all piled on top of each other, which he says is his life's work, his monument to freedom. Well, Catra finds it and decides to fuck it up. And uh, She-Ra gets there in time, and the rebels help save uh, Fritz monument, and in the end, Madame Raz transmutes it into some kind of crystal so it can't be destroyed. But what is really interesting is, like, they have all these kind of layered feelings, Raz and Frit do, about the reasons that they broke up and what made Frit get into art and what made Raz join the Rebels. And it's not even really resolved at the end of the episode. And boy, I thought this was just so interesting. I didn't expect this at all from this show. So that's kind of 
where we're at with these episodes. So let's start with our guest. Marcus, what is your experience with She-Ra, Princess of Power? So this is actually funny because um, I was speaking with my father about this, and he mentioned I really loved She-Ra as a child. Um, I have very few memories of the actual television show. We had... um, a Shira book where one of Shira's friends, her head becomes really huge. <laughs> and it's a really, really odd. I, I didn't remember it at all until I saw the images, but her head is gigantic because she has a cursed crown. Um, uh, but my dad was saying that I really enjoyed Shira. My sisters were also big He Man Shira fans. One of them was more of a Skeletor person. <laughs> um, he is cool. Uh, yeah, my dad actually fought a woman for a Skeletor toy for a Christmas gift once for Whoa. her. So, But yeah, um, so this was kind of a delight to watch because I have very few memories of this. And it was really interesting to just kind of dive back in, uh, recognizing most of the characters, but not remembering anything about the storyline, anything about any of the origins. Um, it was, yeah, just it was delightful, hilarious. Um, the buy-in's not too high, right? So they kind of set it up in the opening credits. You're like, I'm good to go now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. It, it, it's a little deeper than I remember it. Kind of like, you know, an occupying army and a rebellion. Uh, more than I, you know, I was, you think He-Man and Prince kind Adam. Silly, yeah. yeah. But this is kind of a little bit more of a, you know, guerrilla warfare style show it's interesting so yeah then i guess the question for you becomes what as someone whose profession is art curation what did you think of the way that this show treated art like i guess maybe especially in treasure of the first ones like that being the treasure of Ethereum's founders um i i thought it was interesting you know there there is kind of the classic trope of uh you know what what were they defending the treasure was their art and their history and it's kind of like oh but it's treasure to them um so I did in I, I enjoyed that as always, especially for a children's show, kind of that whole that treasure isn't necessarily the technology or the power to destroy somebody, but it's the history of your people. It's the um, you know, the paintings, the sculptures, the pottery, the things that the um the enemies were just kind of writing off. Uh, and I also like that uh, even um Seahawk was kind of, you know, so like, why do you care about this She-Ra? And She-Ra made the point that they needed to take these back because it was what they're fighting for. Um, So I thought that was actually really great when she made the point of this reminds the people of what what we truly are fighting for and and why we keep uh, persevering. I'd like to point out, I want to interject, uh, that moment with Seahawk I wrote down because a few episodes ago, we watched He-Man himself get sort of up in arms that this village was burning and all of their material possessions, all of your things are burning. Don't you want to go rescue your things? And Shira was like, no, those are dumb things. We don't need them. And in this case, uh, Seahawk kind of takes the opposite stance. Like, why would you ever need things? Things are useless. And Shira puts significance on these material objects. I mean, this show's confronted which objects are worth preserving and which aren't before. And that's becoming a, a continuous theme that I was surprised to see return to. Yeah, I th- I, you're right to single that quote out, Marcus. I wrote it down too. Shira says, uh, they say a lot more about why we fight Hordak than any flowery speech, which is like, even though I think the twist of that episode is pretty easily telegraphed, and I'm sure we all saw it coming because we're doing it in the art episode, like that's a pretty strong endorsement of like the worth of art. 
Yeah, definitely. And also, I feel like the uh, the the first ones are also portrayed as kind of the indigenous people, um, and they and it talks about just the you know you think kind of Indiana Jones style like this belongs in a museum, and but for Shira and the rebellion, it means so much more than that because this is their ancestors. This is their homeland that's been invaded, and this is a time before when there's peace. And she makes that you know they make that point also in the Play It Again Bo episode that it's about reminding them of peace times and when times were better and what they're fighting for to make times peaceful. And yeah, again. Hordak gets to this island so easily because someone remarks uh, the first ones had no need for traps. I actually really loved that moment because they, um, going back to say Indiana Jones, when you always have this idol protected by this kind of random series of traps that for whatever reason, these people knew that in however many years somebody would come after their idol, but in all logical actuality, people wouldn't necessarily, you know, at the time they would have guards and then when they went extinct, they would just kind of lay where they were. And so I thought that was a really great moment where uh, Hordak is like, be ready for the traps. And she was like, they had no need for that because you're so evil and nobody conceives of somebody being this evil. Hordak makes a lot of assumptions in this episode early on. I remember I actually did rewind the episode back to the beginning because I thought I must have missed something. The way Hordak's just like... I bet it's all guns. <laughs> like, yeah. Wait, where's he getting this from? And the answer is nowhere. He just, that's what I guess art would be to him. That's or treasure values. would be to him. Yeah, yeah period. I think there's some cool stuff in this episode uh, beyond that. Like, it, it's kind of like the second Seahawk episode for me. There's not a lot of stuff since it's mostly just adventure. Um, along those lines, I did love the Octavia Seahawk fight. I thought that was super cool. How he pulls out his one lightsaber and he's like, I'm the best swordsman on Etheria. And then she pulls out four swords with one with each of her tentacle arms. And he goes, oh, not impressed, huh? <laughs> it was very uh, General Grievous from Star Wars. Like. Yes. Speaking of Star Wars, another cool touch. Did you notice that there were like custom sea troopers for this episode? It's a very Star Wars move. They're kind of hidden in the background, but uh, my little art book here that you can buy through thingsfromanotherworld.com, P.S., and give us a few bucks, uh, has like concept sketches for these uh, seafaring horde troopers, which I thought was pretty cool. But yeah, this is kind of a basic episode, right? Like we all understand that art is the treasure. Nothing too surprising. Before we leave this one, though, uh, uh, I do want to touch on the romance here or lack thereof, because when I was first introduced to Seahawk, I was told the Seahawk episodes are the romance episodes or the relationship episodes, and the romance kind of gets quickly tossed aside in this one when Seahawk's like, oh, Adora's not here? Oh, well. 
I and I thought at the beginning maybe we'd be wrestling with that. Like maybe he'd start being attracted to Shira and we'd have to get to a point where she told the truth to him. And they were like, nope, forget it. And it, that was just thrown aside. Uh, and so it might just be my expectations of knowing that this is supposed to be like the big relationship of the show. On the contrary, though, uh, Play It Again Bo was maybe the most romantic thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And I was so shocked by how that wasn't billed the romance episode. I am really glad that we're watching that in an ep- uh, uh, paired with an episode that has Seahawk. Because, yes, this is a way more fully realized romance in ways that, like, shocked me. That I think even, like, as adults, the feelings are kind of a lot to... Uh, unpack there. I don't know what I would have thought as a kid. Actually, I bet as a kid I would have hated this episode. Yeah, well, and they put the they they put the like metaphorical children in the episode in the what are the little purple the, and the twiggets the twiggets and some of them are oh this is so cute but there's that one twigget every time that's like yuck ugh and I think that's there to be child Eric basically. I think yeah absolutely <laughs> that's so true. Uh, but yeah so. This idea that at some point in the past, Madame Raz broke up with Frit to join the rebellion, and he felt seemingly insecure, and he felt less than because he wasn't a fighter. And so his response was to spend his life making art. Like, oh my god, this is a kid show. I didn't even get, I don't even think it was art at first. The notion was, I just wanted to do something worthy and art is where he landed. And that might even be a stronger message that I searched the the land and I searched my heart and the thing that I decided was worthy of you was, you know, an artistic monument. Uh, that's so beautiful, both sort of on its own, but also in contrast to knowing that, like, she left to, to basically participate in war. It's very sad. But what's cool about that is, like, it starts off being his way to save face for her kind of right like internally but then he just kind of falls into making this art for the world and it's not even about her like he doesn't expect to see her he just runs into her no uh but this whole episode the premise is basically that art has power greater than maybe the creator even expected i do enjoy though and this this gets into the complicated realism of this romantic relationship Raz comes in and she's like, never play that song again. And she starts explaining why she has this sort of trauma surrounding this song. And we find out that not only was this their song, her and Frit together, but they kind of remembered their breakup differently. Like in time apart, they wrote the past to kind of suit them both. And, you know, how often are we really confronted with something from our past reminding us that like maybe you're the hero of your own story but i remember it differently well it was interesting because uh they had there was moments where frit um i was expecting there to be a bitterness about him um because when she first kind of says that was a long time ago he says you know she's still i think he says she's still beautiful and i was expecting him to follow up and and still so like but he doesn't. He just kind of regretfully says, oh, wow, she's still so beautiful. And so I thought that was interesting because he does blame himself for the whole ordeal. And I I, I was uh, kind of surprised that they didn't make him a little more bitter about it because that's the way that usually goes. That's usually goes. the trope, isn't but, it? Yeah. 
Um, I wanted to just go back a little bit about the art in this episode. And just uh, one thing that I thought was really, um, again, the realism of this show was when um, they get to the mountaintop with his monument. Yeah. And um, uh, the, um, what's the woman's name who was the, the evil woman? Ketra. Ke- Ketra. She is actually headed up there already with the express purpose of destroying the monument and is surprised to find the rebels there. And it's just interesting because in times of war, when you want to silence the rebellion and the resistance, you destroy their artwork, you destroy their writing. And I thought that was a really interesting moment where she was clearly, that was the mission was to destroy a piece of artwork that was meant to inspire uh, the rest of the uh, the people that they were repressing. And that it, the conflict just happened because the rebels happened to be there at the time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the modern example I want to talk about uh, is Confederate monuments. Ooh, bringing it back. <laughs> yeah, here we are in 2017. Uh, this uh, is a pretty hot button issue right now when we're recording um, because we talked a couple episodes ago and we were talking more then about the actual marching and the actual rallies. But the thing that was being rallied around was a statue. And so there's this ongoing argument now that should statues to the South or the Confederacy in the Civil War, or should monuments to maybe hateful ideas or even just ideas that weren't victorious in American ideology, should we still have those up? Are they our history or are they you know, the the losing side and meant to be torn down. And I would love to hear some thoughts on this because Katra clearly just wanted to destroy the monument to freedom for kind of this express purpose. And we side with the monument standing in this show. But a lot of the stuff we're dealing with right now, we're not on the side of those statues. I feel like this is going to get into a discussion of intent as well, which like just makes any talk about art so much harder. So... My stance is that I'm against Confederate monuments. I don't know how I square that with the message of this episode. Marcus, maybe you can. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I am absolutely against Confederate monuments, um, and partially because the Confederacy literally stood for slavery and hatred and racism. Uh, I can understand if you have a museum in in the same way that you have uh, Nazi flags preserved in certain museums as just a preservation of something that happened that we hate. Um, But having Confederate monuments literally just as part of the decor on your state building or, you know, just something that people have to walk by every day is is not something I think... uh, I'm I'm not okay with that, and I think that those absolutely should be torn down. Um, we, we have records of what happened and we, we've seen that, you know, the Confederacy was absolutely on the wrong side of history. That was the, you know, this is not just a case of being on the losing side, but they stood for something that the entire rest of the world has said. This was an awful, awful thing. And this is not something I quite see as like art preservation. Um, cause the, you know, these things were put up as an intimidation factor. The, these weren't great, you know, Robert E. Lee was not a great man. Was he? He was a good general from an army standpoint. Um, Stone, you know, all, all of the Confederate generals were 
good army generals, but they're not great men. And the only reason people see them as heroes is because they hold these ideals uh, that are hateful. And um, yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think there's a place in a museum displaying these things as part of a story, a greater story with a greater message. Because when we forget the history that has passed, we're kind of doomed to repeat it. Uh, and so sort of as a never again sort of message. I'm okay with this stuff existing, but in sort of the bubble of the past, in a in a museum with a specific message. Um, I think a specific message is so important because on one hand, not every person in the Confederate Army, not every person in the Nazi Army was like a disgusting, murderous bigot. Some people were just doing their jobs. However, there's a way to say we're honoring victims or we appreciate human beings but not these ideals. And I think a lot of Confederate monuments that are built muddy the water and they might muddy the water even intentionally. Um, They're not saying here's a monument to something horrible that happened that we never want to do again. A lot of them are saying here's a monument glorifying these people and what they did quote unquote for our country but in a way the south wasn't our country the country we became was based on what side of the civil war that succeeded Uh, and so i think it's easy to hide behind well i'm honoring soldiers when really in your gut what you're honoring is these horrific ideals um but the history argument doesn't hold a lot of water to me when you say it's not hatred, it's history, because the monuments are kind of still going up. My best friend lives in Arizona, and she and I recently discovered that a Confederate monument to some of the soldiers who are buried in a cemetery down there was constructed in 2010. So there's a Confederate monument in Sierra Vista, Arizona, that was built in 2010. And at some point, I don't buy anymore that you're celebrating your history. I start to feel you're creating new conflict when you do something like that. And, you know, I would even go as far as to say if you're celebrating your history by saying I'm honoring the southern history of the Confederacy, the Confederates were traitors. Uh, by the very letter of the law, they seceded, they participated in active treason, which even at the time was a, you know, a crime that was almost universally punishable by execution, still is. And, you know, I, I, I would say that all the Confederate generals were very lucky that once the war was over, they just weren't hung, because that was what the letter of the law said at the time. Uh, they didn't go through with it because of how divisive, you know, divided the country already was, but... um you know, they were actively engaging in treason. There was, you know, kind of no no bones about it. It was a, you know, they were fighting against against our country. They can't say that they were fighting for our country because they were literally fighting. They seceded, they started their own nation, and they fought against their country. Right. And so at this point, my question for people who are glorifying statues like this is kind of just, okay, you have freedom of speech, but what are you trying to say? Like, what are you really trying to say about the direction our nation is headed, the people who live here, if the thing you're still really hanging your hat on is these people and this time? 
you know, and to bring it back around to She-Ra, I guess, uh, we do sort of open the can of worms that is intent in this episode because Frit calls this a monument to freedom, but maybe even unironically, Catra calls it a monument to stupidity. And there is something to say about art being in the eye of the beholder. She's never going to see it as a monument to freedom, regardless of what the intent was. I'm never going to see a Confederate monument as a historical, you know, lovely piece of work. But I, I guess I'm also not going to take a blowtorch to it. Maybe I want to, though. Well, a- I'm going to sit in these thoughts for a little bit. I mean, there's an even smaller moment, like... Of two rebels, because when Raz and Broom come upon the monument, I thought this was great, where Raz goes, oh, it's a great big nothing, clearly because she's resentful of their past relationship, and then Broom says, I like it, it says something to me. It's like, oh, that's cute, like, he understands that art is meant to elicit a response, and Madame Raz is just bitter. Um, I mean, I think even beyond, like, the politics of it, this is reducible in a way to humanity. Like, the Confederacy and the Horde are both... uh, groups of people that think that um it's okay to own other people and that seems to pass like some absolute ethical test that goes beyond uh anything else and so i think any kind of monument to that regardless of like what else it might be representing is is kind of bogus and i mean obviously we side with the rebels because they're the heroes of the show but also like the horde are objectively evil uh it sounds like they probably wouldn't but in the United States, there are over 1,500 Confederate monuments. Is the Horde building monuments and statues anywhere in the show, or is that just beyond Hordak because Hordak doesn't get art? Only monuments to Hordak himself. Even in notice in uh, Treasure the First Ones, all of their ships have little Hordak busts on them. That's true. I don't know if I'd call that the same thing, but you're right. All of the ships and tanks have faces on them. Yeah. Maybe that's his art, I guess. Yeah. Well, his art is weapons, you know? He doesn't value art as art. And I don't think Catra understands what the sculpture is meant to. And in a way, even though, like, it's kind of a silly, like, kid show idea of what art is, it's also, Frit has kind of made this, like, avant-garde modern piece. Am I right? Like, Yeah, yeah. it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely kind of, you know, postmodern architectural out of these very colorful glass bottles. Yeah. There's something to be said for the fact that it's all repurposed garbage, essentially, too. Uh, the show does take the time to explain the metaphor to us, which I appreciate. They said all of these kinds and colors uh, come together to make something beautiful and important. And that's bottles, and that's also human beings. Hooray! I did think it was uh, it was interesting when um, Madame Raz offers to uh, make the sculpture indestructible, but she she takes the moment and asks Fritz. She says, "But it'll change your art," and he says, "You know that's that's okay." Yeah. And then she makes it into the Viridian crystal. It, that's you know the hardest substance known and will never fall um but it was funny because my first watch through i was thinking wow she just kind of casually like changed that piece and it looks totally different now but then the second one i realized she she took the moment she said it'll change how the piece looks and he says that that's okay you know this uh, is my otp now (laughs) i have to say that because for one consent is a big deal between them that's a time when consent is granted and at the end he says may i see you again and she says yes where as audience members, we probably would have been rooting for them anyway, and they didn't need to have that moment, but he takes the time to ask her. 
And I will, I'm not lying to you. I got choked up when she got the spell correctly because Madame Raz's whole thing is that her spells are always a little bit wrong. She forgets a word or she stumbles. And because this person loves her and means so much to her, she gets it right. And she's proud of herself and he's proud of her. And there's something about this pair of people that both like celebrates what the other is good at. I was like, get it, guys. I love this. But it's also so sweet that the very end of the episode is Madame Raz riding off on Broom. And then she reasserts their friendship, too. Yeah. She's like, it's you and me, buddy. You know, like, that's really cool. Yeah, Broom could have been a jealous jerk, and he shades that way for a second, and then doesn't. He chooses to be a good friend instead. It, to the point where, like, I almost forgot this was She-Ra's show, especially because her plot is getting a horse for most of the episode. She's <laughs> so removed from the A-plot that, like, I was surprised when She-Ra showed up at the monument, you know? Oh, like, yeah. It, this is such Madame Raz's show. And yeah, this is, since the pilot, my favorite episode, for sure. I did want to bring something up that I think Marcus and I both kind of had a laugh about. Uh, Bo and Seahawk have some similarities physically and... And vocally. And vocally, obviously. And Marcus, you said... I, yeah, I thought that um, my first watch through of these two... Um, I watched Play It Again both first and then The Treasure of the Old One second. And I honestly thought that the loot player was also a pirate. And I, I was like, who is Bo then? Play It Again Bo. Um, and, and I watched it again thinking that the old man's name was Bo. But I was like, that doesn't make sense. And then I realized, oh, the, this is a totally different guy who looks exactly <laughs> the same as the sea pirate. Two yeah. redheads with mustaches. But I... I happened to come across a very interesting theory on Reddit. And I don't actually buy into this theory, but I love fan theories. It's one of my favorite things that these are the same guy. And it's based on the idea that Adora slash She-Ra comes to town and Bo immediately falls for her. But because he's not like stereotypically masculine and he's not a uh, you know action-packed hero type she's not interested in him so he comes up with this second persona specifically to impress her and wins her heart that way and i don't buy into it but i did notice they're not really in the same scenes in these episodes. They're ever. like never in the same episode. <laughs> and part of that is probably practical reasons. They're like, oh, we don't want people to notice they're so similar. But I love that. I also don't think it's true, but I love noodling on stuff like that in my brain. 
So as far as morals, I think the moral of Treasure of the First Ones is already super obvious. I want to talk about the Play It Again bow moral, which we already kind of got into, but it's interesting. Uh, because Lauren and I have talked about how the show has a hard time with uh, diversity in a lot of ways. It has fantasy diversity nailed down, but real-life diversity is not there. Um, and yet, the moral of this episode focuses on that. It says... Uh, that sure was some tower Frit built. The colored bottles represent people of many colors. They also represent the hope that we can become stronger and even more beautiful people if we live and work together with love for one another. I guess there is nothing more important than that. And I feel like this is one of the rare times when Lucky like hits a home run. Yeah. And maybe even not to slight the episode, but he like compliments what's in the episode instead of regurgitating or lessening. He's like, hey, this is also important. And so I want to give props to Lookie just this one finally, time. Finally, <laughs> finally, Lookie. I did, yeah, I agree. There's always room for improvement. I mean, I would have loved some specific examples that maybe kids would recognize. But you're right. He built on what was in the episode. And in, in, in a show when sometimes the moral isn't even related to the episode at all. So like, good job, buddy. Also, I found him in both episodes. I'm getting really good at this. <laughs> and the one, it was hard because his back was to the camera. So that was the tricky one. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's in Played Again Bo. He's like looking down from his back. Yeah, to be fair, in Treasure of the Ancient Ones, the camera lingers they on him really staring dead-eyed into the screen <laughs> <laughs> for true. several moments. Don't take this away from me, Marcus. <laughs> that's, true. <laughs> that's true. I will. So I've, I mentioned before, there's two episodes where Lucky is a character in the story, and I read the moral for the first one, and he goes, "I know you found me today because I was in the story." And it's like, <laughs> but what if some kid totally missed it? How bad is that kid gonna feel? Oh, that was Lucky. Yeah. Oh, but no, this is this was good, and I like that the show it, without it didn't seem tacked on, even though it could have uh, the bottle angle. I just kind of accepted it as part of Fritz's mission. Like, yeah, okay, that's what the bottles represent. I get it. Like, it didn't seem weird to me. So let's, okay, let me put, let's put it this way. Since, obviously, the relationship material, which, again, I think goes above and beyond. Like, clearly, they would not try to make a moral out of that because it's a little too complex for kids. If you were going to try to make a moral <laughs> out of what Raz and Fritz go through, what, how would you put that? Marcus, feel free to play along. Well, I, I think one thing was that they both um, they both ended up doing what they felt was right with Frit maybe eventually, but M Madame Raz said she couldn't not fight for the rebellion, and Frit said he had to follow his life's work and make this inspirational piece of artwork, and it showed at the end that even though that those that caused them to go their separate ways because they both did what was right by their hearts, they ended up kind of on a converging path again. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, I think we've all been in some crappy relationships, especially when I was younger. I really tried to change myself to fit the other person, the person I was interested in. And I feel like the best relationship you can find is one that not only accepts who you are and the things that you like and how you spend your time, but enhances them and celebrates them. So, you know, I'm a cosplayer. My husband cosplays with me. We take music lessons together. We've decorated our home with, you know, I want to put up my Mass Effect stuff. He wants to put up his podcasting stuff. And it's always something that we support and enjoy 
in one another where I've been in relationships before where someone's like, why do you spend so much time playing video games? Or why do you want to hang that thing on the wall? It's terrible. Or you spend so much time sewing costumes, but what about like clothes you can actually wear? And never once has my marriage questioned those things. Uh, he, it celebrates them instead. He celebrates them. And so even though, as Marcus says, these people both followed their heart and ended up in separate directions, in the end, her fighting spirit and magic improves his art and his art improves her experience in the rebellion so friends out there kids and loved ones make sure you find someone who amplifies and celebrates and is proud of you and lets you be it thanks for listening to she-ra progressive of power if you like our show you can rate and review us on apple podcasts we'd super appreciate it you can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or as a comment on our podcast page at progressiveofpower.wordpress.com. Art can be created from any media, including recycled materials. The Waste Shed is a nonprofit Chicago thrift store that collects and sells used art, craft, and school supplies. September 2017 was a record month for donations. If you can volunteer to sort art supplies, stop by the Waste Shed, 2842 Chicago Avenue, or call 773-666-5997.